What's up everybody, GenX Divinet Investor here. In this video I'll be answering 7 interesting subscriber questions which cover a bunch of investing and finance topics. If you'd like me to potentially answer a question of yours in a future Millionaire Dividend Investing questions and answers video, then follow me on Instagram at GenXDividendInvestor and DM your questions. And damn it Jim, I'm a doctor not a financial expert, so please take my responses as entertainment only. Finally, please hit that thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. And don't forget to share this video, maybe with that relative who says the stock market is for gamblers. Okay, the first question comes from Fran who asked, Hey Gen X, I wanted to send you this quick thank you note for making that dividend aristocrat spreadsheet. It's been super useful to use and I wanted to ask you if you missed Altria on it. Either way, thanks, Fran. Thank you for your question, Fran. It's funny you mentioned that because I also had an upper tier Patreon on my Discord who asked me the exact same thing. It's a great question because Altria has been increasing their dividend for 51 years and are on the S&P 500, so why didn't I include them on that spreadsheet? So I'll tell you why. The S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrat Index was apparently launched by S&P Global Ratings, aka Standard & Poor's, in 2005. To qualify for membership in their official Dividend Aristocrat list, a company has to meet four main criteria, as well as one minor criteria, and I'll include a link to their methodology PDF in the description below. Those criteria are number one, be a member of the S&P 500, number two, have increased total dividend per share amount every year for at least 25 consecutive years, number three, have a minimum float adjusted market cap of at least $3 billion as of the rebalancing reference date, number four, have an average daily value traded of at least $5 million for the three months prior to the rebalancing reference date, and then a minor criteria at number five, which is a rule that said for spinoffs occurring after January 1st, 2013, the yearly dividend increase history of the parent company is assigned to both the parent and spin-off company of the spin-off effective date. So TLDR, if a company spun off another company in 2013 or later, then both companies can count the number of consecutively increasing years prior to the spin-off, otherwise they seemingly start at zero. If we look at Altria's history, then we see that they were the US division of Philip Morris that completed its spin-off of the international division in 2008. And five years before that spinoff happened, Philip Morris was renamed Altria, or actually the Altria Group. If you also dig into Altria's and Philip Morris's payouts, you get a picture of how much the dividend shareholders were getting as the spinoff was happening. So apparently Altria doesn't meet all the criteria that's needed to be on the list, even though you'll find some blogs and websites which call Altria a dividend aristocrat. And an interesting observation, it looks like the dividend king's criteria is just the 50 consecutive years one not the ones about being on the S&P 500 or the size and liquidity requirements, which is why you can find companies on the Dividend Kings list which aren't on the Dividend Aristocrats list. Anyways, based on the formal definition, AbbVie is considered a Dividend Aristocrat. Thus, both AbbVie and Abbott are at 49 consecutive years of dividend increases, even though AbbVie officially came into existence in 2013 as a spinoff. I mentioned AbbVie specifically because someone recently left me a comment saying that AbbVie only came into existence about 8 years ago, so they couldn't be an aristocrat. Understandable why they said that, but now you know why AbbVie is apparently officially a dividend aristocrat. I guess now we can all do better if we're ever on Jeopardy and they have a dividends category. Okay, let's move on. My second of seven questions comes from Lee who asked, I hear a lot of people talking about AT&T's debt. What are your thoughts on it? Thanks Lee, let's dig into their debt a bit. AT&T lists their debt ratings on their site. You can see that Moody's and Fitch has their credit debt rating as stable, but S&P has them as negative. And then here's a slide from their March investor presentation where they show their debt plan overview. We can see that they had a total debt of about $177 billion in 2018 and anticipate to be around $154 billion at the end of this year. 
That's after their sale of DirecTV as well as includes the financing they did to buy 5G Spectrum recently. You can also see that the free cash flow after paying their dividend is around $11 billion, which is nice. It's helpful to dig into their short-term liabilities, i.e. things due in the next 12 months, and look at what they owe further out in the future. I find it also useful to look at how much debt they have relative to their earnings and cash flow and such. One useful metric is debt divided by EBITDA, and another useful metric is interest cover, which is how easily their earnings before interest and tax can cover their interest payments. We see that their debt is around three times EBITDA, and a bit more of a multiple than that for their interest expense cover. So bottom line, debt is a very real risk to the company, which helps explain why the stock prices remain relatively depressed, which has in turn driven up the yield to around 7%, which in this environment is high. What excites me about AT&T? One is that their HBO Max subscribers are blowing up, and in their March presentation they showed a slide that said they hit their subscriber goal way ahead of schedule. Now I'm not only long an AT&T stock, but my family also uses them as the cellular provider on our iPhones, and with their recent package offerings I'm also an HBO Max subscriber, and thus I'm super excited for the new AT&T Game of Thrones prequel TV series that's being worked on called House of Dragon. Stop watching if you don't want any spoilers, but this new series is set 300 years before the events of Game of Thrones, and it tells the story of House Targaryen back when Daenerys' ancestors ruled Westeros. So this will cover the famous Dance of the Dragons, aka the Targaryen Civil War, and the new series has some of the best Games of Thrones TV people involved, like the guy who directed Battle of the Bastards, and it is executive produced by George R.R. R. Martin. The first season is 10 episodes and is scheduled to air in 2022. I'm super excited. I don't know if that excites me more or if the $500 million Amazon Lord of the Rings series does. That Amazon series will take place in Tolkien's second age, i.e. millennia before the events of The Hobbit. Unfortunately, it doesn't have an ETA yet. Anyways, AT&T is driving money into creating great content, and their HBO Max subscribers are a testament to that, and more subscribers were added in the last 7 months of 2020 than were added in the previous decade. So I think in a few years I wouldn't be surprised to see HBO Max driving a few bucks on the stock, as they predict 120 million HBO Max subscribers by 2025. In fact, yesterday when we saw the market crack, probably due to those potential tax changes that were announced, we saw AT&T was up around 5% due to their recent performance announcements. What else excites me about AT&T? Well, this investor slide shows how their customers are continually using the internet more and more on devices, all of which bodes well for them for both wireless and wired customers. We also see that their wireless subscribers are growing. And on this slide, we see that their broadband subscribers are growing too. One thing to be aware of is that they've mentioned multiple times that their plan is to sustain the dividend at current levels, which could mean no dividend hike in 2021, which would then also mean they would lose their aristocrat status. Their total dividend payout ratio is in the high 50s range, so it feels secure to me given their cash flow, but their debt might cause them not to raise their dividend for now, not even a penny. But hopefully they feel they can raise it a bit. We should know within 7 months, I guess. Additionally, my thought is that if they can drive down their debt and can take it down to $100 billion, then I think the stock would be responding nicely, something it hasn't really done for decades other than yesterday's spike. Okay, let's move on. My third of seven questions comes from Oscar the French Bulldog who asked, Do you reinvest your dividends into the same companies or use the dividends to diversify into new companies? Hi Oscar, you gotta leave me a comment and tell me if you are indeed the famous fashionable French Bulldog that currently lives in London and has his own Instagram account. Anyways, the answer is no. I no longer drip my dividends. I actually did a video you might want to watch called Huge Dividend News about my portfolio where I revealed that I finally turned off my drip after being on for decades and am now living on my dividends. I gotta tell you it's amazing to have your dividends pay your mortgage and your health insurance and such. Between that and my new social media businesses I'm happier and having more fun than I've ever had in my life. Dividends make that much of a difference and it was worth the effort to get to this point. 
I recently had someone ask me why I don't just go into high yield stocks and be making 240 grand a year of dividends at a 10% yield instead of 80 grand at my 3.4% yield. And the answer is that I wouldn't feel nearly as secure in stocks that are probably much riskier. In my experience, it's the newer investor who goes after a high yield portfolio and they usually get burned. Oh sure, for a few years they're sailing high, feeling good, but then whammo. And unfortunately I've seen others experience that whammo many times in my life. Anyways, if I made another 100 grand or 200 grand a year, I wouldn't go live in a nicer house. I wouldn't eat out more. I wouldn't waste more money on crap I don't need. Honestly, not much would change. I've learned that I prefer to live more frugally and less wastefully, regardless of how much money I make. I'd rather have a Ford or a Toyota than a Lambo. Expensive cars are a pain to maintain and to park and all that. I've had spendier cars in the past and much prefer inexpensive and safe. They're fun, but they're also a pain. I'd also rather live in a simple house in a nice safe neighborhood than in a mansion, and that's coming from someone who has lived in a ridiculously extravagant house. I personally needed to experience extravagance to realize it didn't bring me long-term happiness. That being said, I would love to move overseas somewhere and lower our cost of living even more, but while I'm more about being frugal now, my wife has more expensive tastes. Maybe I can convince her that if we move somewhere exotic, then we can get a full-time cook and maid. Hmm. Anyways, I'll stick with my companies and their overall conservative yield, because that floats my boat. If something else floats your boat, then great. Okay, let's move on. My fourth of seven questions comes from Anders, who asked, Hey Gen X, thank you for your videos. I really enjoyed watching you invest almost half a million dollars into the market, and I had a question for you. Why invest in both MO and PM? Why not just MO, which seems to perform better? Thanks again, Anders. Hey Anders, so the reason why I originally split my SIN investments into both of them was because I wanted a bit of diversity in a risky space. I liked both of their financial trends overall, with some caveats. I also like that MO does great in the US market and that they have investments in MJ and in alcohol. I like the fact that PM has that strong international presence, so more growth opportunities with probably less regulatory issues. Case in point, the Biden administration apparently is considering new restrictions on tobacco products sold in the USA to lower nicotine amounts to less addictive levels, which in turn recently hammered Altria. However, even after some decently red days for Altria, I'm still up a ridiculous 16% on them in two months, and I'm up 20% on PM in two months. Of course, I don't put much attention to those crazy returns in such a short time. I'm more interested on if they'll hold up to my needs as time goes on. So while MO has historically been one of the best performing stocks of all time, I'm fairly confident that they won't continue to perform as well as they used to. And I feel that them combined with PM makes an aggregate investment that has the risk profile and growth potential that I'm comfortable with. But wow, they have performed better faster than I would have predicted. Okay, let's continue. My fifth of seven question comes from Robert. I'm going to paraphrase his email as he had a bunch of personal information I doubt he would want me to share. The TLDR is this. He's feeling down on himself because he recently got fired from a job, which he actually hated, but now he's found out he's more stressed out than the stress he had from a crappy job. His passion is learning about new technology, like what's happening with drones, or learning about how AI is improving, or etc. He was using his passion in technology to identify companies he would invest in, but even when he had his job, he didn't feel like he was making enough money to invest as much as he wanted. His question to me was if he had any advice on what he should do. Hey Robert, so I can relate to how you feel. I've had jobs I've hated in the past, and I also enjoy hearing about tech trends. I actually had a role at a job I loved where part of my responsibilities entailed staying abreast of all technology trends and reporting them out to the executives. I also had had times where I didn't feel like I made enough money to invest as much as I wanted. And getting fired sucks. It can be a punch in the gut. I got laid off once when a company I worked for got acquired and then a bunch of us were let go. When that happened I was depressed, and yet the irony is that looking back it turned out that getting axed was one of the best things that ever happened to me. 
It prompted me to pick myself up, learn some new skills, reevaluate my finances, and I eventually ended up in a much better spot, which wouldn't have happened if I had stayed. Look, it's normal to feel bad when things like that happen, but recognize that being fired doesn't define you, nor does being depressed. That's true no matter what the bad situation is. If you got divorced, then don't let that define you. It reminds me of the Mark Twain saying that courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. Courage isn't the lack of feeling fear. It's feeling fear and not giving up. What defines who you are is how you get back up when you've been knocked down. I think you have a ton of potential. I read that more innovation from new technology will occur in the next 20 years than have happened in the last 200 years. Why? Due to the internet and AI. Why do I tell you that? Because your passion is aligned to possibilities and opportunities. What you love learning about is hot and will get hotter. Famed motivational speaker Earl Nightingale once said, if you spend one extra hour each day in the study of your chosen field, you could be a national expert in five years or less. I don't know about your financial situation, but maybe you can start going down a path to monetize your passion. Maybe you can live with your parents to cut down on expenses for a while. Maybe start a blog where you show what hot technology is for sale. Become an Amazon affiliate of drones that you love and have reviewed. Maybe partner with your friend and start a podcast where you guys just talk about technology. Start a YouTube channel where you show various technology trends. Maybe couple your passion of technology with investing. The reality is it's tough to start a social media business, and you'll probably work harder than you ever have in your life, but you'll be doing something you might love. Slowly over time, you'll probably start making money. Then maybe you can use that money to invest in your business and in the market. The hardest part is to start. So think about it. It doesn't have to be perfect. You'll figure it out. I believe in you. Okay, moving on. The sixth question comes from Dring, who asked, I've heard that 55% of the people are in the stock market, but when I dig deeper, those tend to be work 401ks. Do you have any data that shows how many people in the US invest in individual stocks? Also, how many of your friends or relatives invest in the stock market? Hey Dring, so first of all, you're correct. Here is Gallup data from 2020 that said that 55% of US adults own stocks, where stocks include 401ks and such. 58% of men invest in stocks and 52% of women do. In terms of ages that own stock, 32% of 18 to 29 year olds do, all the way up to 66% of age 50 to 64 year olds do. 64% of non-Hispanic whites own stock as compared to 42% of non-Hispanic blacks and 28% of Hispanics. 85% of postgrads own stock and 33% of people who didn't go to college own stock. If your income is over 100k a year, then 84% of you own stock, down to 22% for those making less than 40k a year. 61% of Republicans own stock and 56% of Democrats do. To answer your second question, very few of my friends own stock. In terms of actual friends who invest in single stocks, I only know of two. However, I have a ton of acquaintances that I know that invest in single stocks, but they aren't my close friends. In terms of relatives, it's actually zero. I don't know of any of my relatives that invest in individual stocks, though I have a bunch that have work 401ks. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean they don't invest in stocks. It just means that whenever topics like this have come up in conversation over the years, I either heard negative things about the stock market or I heard them only talking about work 401ks. Now, to your question about how many people invest in individual stocks, well, I found a Federal Reserve bulletin from September of 2017 that said that only about 14% of U.S. adults hold individual stocks. Let me say that again so it sinks in. Only 14% of U.S. adults invest in single stocks. So if you are out there and you just started investing in single stocks, realize that you're now ahead of 86% of the population. That's both good for you and sad for them. Remember, it's never too late to start investing, and any assets you own puts you ahead of the majority of the population. Okay, last question. This came from someone on my Discord who said, 
You were talking about negative Kager, and I didn't understand how that's possible. Sorry I don't talk much and tend to just lurk, but want to understand. First of all, no worries. I get PMs on my Discord almost daily from people who just say they lurk but don't talk much. So how can you have a negative dividend Kager? Well, if your company has cut their dividend over the time period in question, more than they raise their dividend, then they will have a negative dividend Kager. A 0% Kager means they kept their dividend flat for years. What that also means is that if a negative CAGR trend continues, your estimated dividend income will shrink as the years go on, not grow. Yikes. I actually recently saw someone's portfolio where their estimated dividend income was shrinking over time, not growing, because their portfolio average weighted dividend CAGR was negative. I'd never seen a portfolio like that before. So a couple example companies with non-positive five-year dividend CAGRs right now are STWD and SPG, per Seeking Alpha. Of course, while historical performance and trends are no guarantee of the future, it is helpful to understand various trends when you're analyzing what you want to invest in. Also, be aware that what looks like a dividend cut could also mean they spun off another company which started paying dividends, thus you might not actually have a cut in your overall dividend income, so you need to dig into it a bit more. Anyways, let's look at Simon Property Group's 10-year dividend payout history on Seeking Alpha so you can see what I mean. Here you can visually see when the dividend was seemingly cut, which usually means the management team is trying to help their balance sheet out by lowering how much they distribute. When we look at their dividend summary information, we see zero consecutive years of dividend growth and a negative 3.61% five-year growth rate. So they used to pay out more dividends, but they did a dividend cut, so now they pay out less, thus they have a negative five-year dividend CAGR. To be clear, that doesn't mean a company is a bad investment just because it has a non-positive dividend CAGR. Think of Disney. They're a great company, but due to the pandemic, they suspended their dividend. Why did they suspend? Well, an unprecedented event happened in the pandemic, which killed their revenue in the short term. Then their streaming platform blew up, way more than they anticipated, and they realized they could make more money for their shareholders in the long term if they focus on driving that dividend money into creating more awesome Star Wars and Marvel content. Also, Disney didn't have a rich history of increasing their dividend in the first place. So you can still make money on a company that has a non-positive dividend CAGR, but if a key goal of your investment was to have consistent dividend growth without manufacturing your own dividend by selling shares, then companies that have non-positive dividend CAGRs obviously wouldn't score well in that aspect of your investing analysis. And now we see strong companies in AT&T and Exxon that find themselves on the precipice of a big decision. Do they raise their dividends this year or do they go sideways or what? AT&T is also experiencing a streaming platform that is blowing up way better than they anticipated. But they also have a much longer history of increasing their dividend but their debt is a massive drag. What will they do? Only time will tell. What will Exxon do? For them, I think a lot of it depends on the price of oil, which is unfortunate. Anyways, I hope that explains the negative categories to you. Now I'd like to shout out my latest Patreon aristocrats who have recently signed up. So thank you, Manuel Villalobos. Thank you, Youngdom. And thank you, Iacopo. As an aristocrat, they gain access to my new dividend spreadsheet and to multiple private channels on my Discord, including ones where I sometimes talk about my growth portfolio and I let people watch my videos before I release them to the public. As well as I often let you vote on which thumbnails I should use for my videos. And thank you to you, the viewer, for watching my video. Please consider hitting the thumbs up button, subscribing if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. I highly recommend that you join my free dividend Discord chat server, which has thousands of dividend investors on it and it's growing all the time. Finally, if you'd like me to potentially answer a question of yours in a future Millionaire Dividend Investing questions and answers video, then follow me on Instagram at GenXDividendInvestor and DM me your questions. Thanks, and I'll talk to you again real soon. I am not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.